If you have a Bible, you can open to Exodus chapter 20. Um, and I would recommend that you do that because we're actually going to read a larger section than is um, printed for you. Exodus 20, if you have a Bible. Um, if not, that's okay. Um, so next week, we are going to start a new worship series, uh, a series on worship, basically. Um, we'll, we'll talk, we'll introduce the series anyway with um, discussion of worship in general. All of our lives are supposed to be spent uh, in worship. Our, our whole life is a, is a sacrifice to God. And, um, and so we'll talk about that in general, but also um, I think we're going to use this um, series over the next couple months, maybe two, two and a half months or so, um, to talk primarily about uh, the way that we worship um, when we come together as the church, which is, you know, it's our, it's our main job as the church, and kind of the main way that we do that is here on Sunday mornings, uh, Lord, Lord's Day worship. So we'll talk about um, why we do what we do, um, big things that we do, like why do we pray, <laughs> why do we have a sermon, um, and, uh, and even the small things that we do. I think you'd be surprised, uh, maybe not, maybe you're familiar enough with Presbyterians, basically everything that we have control over, uh, we have thought out, thought through, and uh, do for some reason or another. Hopefully they're good ones, but um, really we do have actually biblical reasons for uh, most of what we do on Sunday mornings, and that's what we'll, we'll talk about uh, over the next couple months, starting next week. Uh, this week, we're finishing up a series that we've been doing on the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, that we find primarily in Exodus 20. Um, <clears throat> it might seem strange, since it's Easter, that we're not taking a break from this series and coming back and finishing it next week. Um, uh, strange that we wouldn't uh, talk about one of those resurrection-oriented passages that uh, you find in the scriptures are fairly commonly preached on Sundays at, at Easter time, but... Um, I think that you will probably see how uh, the resurrection is especially relevant to the Ten Commandments in general, but uh, this one in particular as we look at it, the Tenth Commandment, uh, not to covet. So uh, hopefully it'll all make sense in the end. Um, it actually will be a resurrection sermon. So, <clears throat> so give me a couple minutes and I'll persuade you of that. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read the scripture. I'm going to read... Um, chapter 20, through, uh, verse 1 through 21. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we come to consider it this morning, we pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would enable us to hear and see you in your word, that we would uh, not be afraid to take it to heart but that you would, uh, by your grace, assure us of your love for us in a way that implants this word deep in our souls and changes us from the inside out more and more into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, give you a little context there, um, reading all the commandments. and Maybe if you were paying close attention, uh, you might notice, um, how is it on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. Um, one of these commandments is not like the others. Uh, one of, uh, most of the other commandments immediately directly address explicitly uh, outward behaviors, like not committing the acts of murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, right? Um, we've looked uh, through the series at how really they're addressing what's going on uh, at a deeper level than simply our actions. But those, those commandments explicitly, directly address those actions. Uh, the 10th commandment, however, you shall not covet, directly addresses um, what's going on inside of our hearts. So um, coveting is something that you can do without other people noticing. Right? Uh, it's, it's an inappropriate affection. It's a desire. It's a yearning for something that isn't ours, it doesn't belong to us. And that coveting, that desire, that affection yearning does not necessarily manifest itself in an outward behavior at all. In fact, um, the fact that the Ten Commandments close with a commandment like this is truly remarkable. It might, might not seem like it's a very religious thing to address, right? This is just everyday stuff. Don't, don't covet your neighbor's stuff, right? Uh, that's just everyday, kind of not religious. But it's not dealing with some external activity. We'd expect these commandments to address, you know, tithing and lifting up your hands in prayer and things that, you know, those are more religious things in our minds. Um, but it's not dealing with those. In fact, uh, this commandment gives us insight into what exactly God considers religious. Right? It is precisely 
the internal movements and affections and motives of our hearts that God is most keen to address in his word. So there's a sense in which the 10th commandment, being a little bit distinct from the others, um, is, is a great summary commandment from one perspective, just like actually the, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a great summary commandment in a sense. So um, Ed Clowney says about this, this commandment focuses not on actions, but on attitudes. It speaks not just of what we do, but of what we want to do. Of all the neighbor-related commandments, it is the only one that can't be seen by neighbors. Only God will see that this commandment has been broken. All right, so this, um, this commandment explains how Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament can summarize the commandments with those two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, this commandment vindicates their interpretation and, and our interpretation as we've been going through this series of uh, all the other commandments that we've seen um, it's not just a New Testament invention, right? It's not just some late theological innovation to see the Ten Commandments addressing our hearts, addressing us on a, a deep level that goes beyond our actions, right? Jesus um, has simply clarified for us in the, in the Gospels what these commandments require, and, and it's love. These commandments require love. From the depths of our being, love for God and love for others. Love is something that comes first from the heart, and then it finds outward expression in our words or in our actions, but it's got to start in the heart, or else it's not truly love. Um, John Calvin, the, the old French um, reformer, said that since God wills that our whole soul be possessed with a disposition to love, we must banish from our hearts all desire contrary to love. God, therefore, commands a wonderful ardor of love, which he does not allow one particle of covetousness to hinder. He requires a marvelously tempered heart and does not permit the tiniest pinprick to urge it against the law of love. So this is where things get pretty extreme, right? Uh, in, in the giving of his law, God requires absolute perfection of love. Absolute perfection of love on a level that, if we're honest, we have to admit is just simply impossible for us to attain. You can't do it. All love, only love, all the time, heart, soul, mind, and strength, not even a hint of anything else, not even for an instant. So you have to ask yourself, uh, how are you doing with that, right? The Ten Commandments are actually given to us as an aid to answer that question. They're given to help us to understand that we are sinners. That's the point that Paul is making in our New Testament reading from Romans 7. He said in verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He would have sinned, he wouldn't have known his sin if it weren't for the law. God wants you to know that you sin. 
He wants you to know what sin looks like, and he wants you to know that you commit it. So he gave his law to point out that fact, and you have to be willfully ignorant. The Gospels say that you have to be blind to look at his law and to look at yourself and to think otherwise about yourself than that you're a sinner. As we look at the commandment not to covet, the first thing we should do is reflect on how we do covet. Not whether we do, how we do. So what exactly is coveting? Uh, Paul defines it uh, really briefly in Colossians 3. He says, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. So that actually connects it right there to the first of the Ten Commandments. But uh, Ed Clowney gives kind of a summary definition, I think, um, might help us understand a little bit clearer. Covetousness is our desire for anything that would draw us away from contentedly serving God wherever in His good providence He has placed us. God has placed us in His good providence where we are, and we're to be content with that, and coveting is anything that would draw our hearts away from that contentedness. Right? It's when we look around at what others have that we don't have, and evil desires are sparked in our hearts, even, even for an instant. Right? Jealousy, envy, suspicion, cynicism, Grumbling and complaining, just general dissatisfaction, being a malcontent. I will be happy when I finally get that. All I need is that. And then I'll be happy. <clears throat> this commandment is um, it's actually pretty specific as it appears in the scriptures, which makes it easy for us to apply. It's pretty easy to understand coveting a neighbor's house or a neighbor's wife, isn't it? You're looking across the street at your neighbor's perfect lawn, and it serves up feelings of uh, jealousy or, in my case, inadequacy. <laughs> I haven't done enough here. I want that over there. Or you're visiting friends in their home, and you see some really cool IKEA chairs or some really cool pottery barn, chest of drawers, <laughs> something, right, that you just have to have. And sometimes that leads to breaking another commandment, which is thou shalt not steal. Um, but more frequently nowadays, we're actually just able to satisfy ourselves by going out to the store or going online and buying the same stuff or maybe better stuff. Right? We think we can fulfill those covetous desires. And even though... Um, most of our neighbors don't have these amazing servants or really sleek livestock to uh, covet. Um, that's not too hard for us to understand either. We envy our neighbors' positions, their status, their business success. Um, maybe, maybe a donkey is like a car, transportation. Maybe we envy their, their ride. I know I envy Nathan's motorcycle. Right? Um, Whatever it is. And they don't, they don't even have to be tangible things. They don't even have to be material objects. We covet our neighbor's reputations. We covet their influence. 
We covet our coworkers' uh, positions in the company. We covet, covet our neighbor's health or, or their beauty. And in fact, our neighbors don't even have to be real for there to be coveting going on inside of our hearts. Just watch a television ad and observe your soul for 30 seconds when you see some actor enjoying tremendously whatever it is that you really deserve. Right? Uh, apparently, enticing people to break the Tenth Commandment is a pretty profitable industry. Uh, $50 billion in the U.S. <clears throat> if we don't have it, and we see someone has it, or even imagine that some imaginary person has it, then we covet. It's our propensity, it's our tendency. Dorothy Sayers says this, hand in hand with covetousness goes its close companion, invidia or envy, which hates to see other men happy. The names by which it offers itself to the world's applause are right and justice. And it makes a great parade of these austere virtues. It begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Envy is the great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. And the words constantly in its mouth are, my rights and my wrongs. At its best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it's a destroyer. Rather than have anybody happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. Does that make sense? That'll wreak havoc in your relationships. It's yet another perspective on our selfishness brought to you by the Decalogue. That selfishness goes straight against the law of love. And so once again, we stand exposed before God in our heart's desires, exposed by his law. Does that surprise you that you're exposed to God in the depths of your being in your heart where you have these affections and desires that you stand naked before God there? Does that surprise you? Right? Or don't you sense somehow instinctively that your thoughts, your feelings, your deepest heart movements they aren't private. Do you sense that instinctively, that your soul lies bare before God? <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Uh, we sing, our secret sins are brought to light before his clear and searching sight. God has spoken his word, especially his law, to actually help us to explore the, the hidden recesses of our hearts, which are already clear as day to him. He says, do not covet. He says, be content. So are you always and only completely satisfied with where God has you in life, with what God has provided for you? Has that <clears throat> supreme and perfect contentment then spilled out of you in 
uh, joyous, loving pursuit of the good of others. That's what this commandment is getting at. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is one of our denominational documents. Really, if you can get past the really long run-on sentences, there's, there's some good stuff in there, right? Um, the Westminster, it, it says this <clears throat> about this commandment. The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul, such a loving frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor, as that all our inward motions and affections touching our neighbor tend unto and further all that, which, uh, that good which is his. And the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are the discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. So God's word convinces us that we live in broken relationships with people because we're broken on a deep level, down at the core of our hearts. Sin lives deep down there, and there is nothing that we can do about that on our own. There's nothing we can do about that on our own. We can't escape it. We can't fix it. We can't even camouflage it. We cannot hide it from God. So the law points out our desperate need for salvation. If we're going to enjoy a relationship with God who is holy, if we're going to be changed from the inside out, if our relationships are going to be uh, mended, then someone outside of ourselves is going to have to do something radical. And I mean radical not just in the sense of extreme, but kind of the original Latin word uh, radical, which means root, right? God's going to have to do something down at the root, in us. We need to be changed on a fundamental level that we cannot touch at the very core of our hearts and our souls. And Jesus can do that. And only Jesus can do that. The Bible doesn't leave us any room to believe otherwise. You cannot be reconciled to God. You cannot be truly changed apart from the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Even though you and I have utterly failed to keep God's law, Jesus Christ has perfectly kept it for us. He's perfectly fulfilled the law for you. He was never envious. He was never covetous. He never grumbled or complained. He was always wholly content and satisfied with his father's love and his father's provision for him and from the depth of his heart. Because he didn't need anything. He wasn't looking. He didn't have these affections for things that he didn't have. From the depths of his heart, he desired the good of other people. So much so that he stepped in our place and he took the crushing, killing weight of God's wrath for lawbreakers like us, for the unholy. The innocent ones suffered and died on the cross for the guilty so that God's wrath would be removed from us so that we would be counted as, as innocent and righteous in God's sight. And that's the only way that our relationship to God can be restored. Right. And when you put your trust in Christ, when you believe that gospel, that good news, then your faith, your, your trust in God is itself the alternative to covetousness. <clears throat> Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said that the root of covetousness is distrust 
of God's providence. It's unbelief in God's providence. Faith believes that God will provide, that he who feeds the birds will feed his children, that he who clothes the lilies will clothe his lambs, and thus faith overcomes the world. It not only purifies the heart, but satisfies it. It makes God our portion, and in him we have enough. It's a bit of an understatement. If God has given his son for you, he has already proven that he is not stingy. He's not going to withhold any good thing from you that you need. In giving you himself as a free gift of his grace, he utterly dwarfs all other things that we could possess. Even if we possessed everything in the universe, he dwarfs it. And he's given himself to you by his grace. So maybe you don't have all the cool stuff that your neighbor has. Maybe your spouse isn't as attractive as your neighbor's spouse. Maybe you're not as successful in business. Maybe your health isn't as good as your neighbor's. But if you have God, and if you really know what that means, then why would you envy any one of those things? Psalm 16 says that the Lord is my chosen portion, my choice portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That is the the lines of my inheritance. When my father was doling out the property lines, those lines fell in good spots for me. I got a good inheritance. I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. It's clearly a reference to being in eternity with God. And this is where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is particularly relevant. Um, If you, if you, um, I want to be sensitive here. If you, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, um, if you want to debate the historicity of that, uh, I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, Let's get coffee or come back next week. Uh, We'll talk about it. Suffice it to say, um, the way that I want to treat the resurrection this morning, it's not a problem to be explained. It's not some crazy doctrine to be apologized for and try to make sense of. The resurrection is the solution. It's the remedy. It's the answer for all of our brokenness, for all the brokenness in the world. So starting with that assumption, Tim Keller says, It's a quote that appears in the front of your bulletin. I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope. So after he was murdered and buried in the tomb, Jesus rose from the grave bodily. His human body was made whole and perfect. It was super clothed with immortality. And he will enjoy life and glory and power forever as the firstborn of the dead, the scriptures say. The firstborn of the dead. His resurrection, then, is a guarantee of the abundant eternal life that awaits all those who put their trust in him. His resurrection is a guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. Even as he has been raised from the dead, so shall we be raised from the dead, and God himself 
is our choice, pleasant, beautiful inheritance because we are in Christ, because we're united to him by faith. Everything good that's coming to the risen Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is coming to us if we're united to him by faith. Paul says in Romans 6, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And John says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So C.S. Lewis <clears throat> said about um, this concept, if we, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. But as we start to grasp the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find the heights of joy, the fullness of joy, the sure promise of eternal delights and pleasures forevermore that can't be lost, that can't even be threatened. And it isn't all just future hopes and promises. We've been given new hearts now. It's an advance on the new creation when our bodies and our souls are made perfect and new We've been given new hearts by the spirit of the risen Lord who lives in us. Our flesh and its evil desires have been crucified with Christ, and we've been born again to a new and holy affection for God. So, Paul again, Romans, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the power of the resurrection, the power of the Spirit, the power of new life, is at work within us by God's grace as we put our faith in Christ. We are renewed to be able to keep God's law, albeit imperfectly. We're renewed to be able to keep the law by the spirit of holiness, the spirit of life, the spirit of love who lives in our hearts. He reaches down into the deep places, into the tombs of our hearts, and he revives us. He makes us alive to God. He makes us happy and satisfied with God thankful to God. He even makes us content with the circumstances in which God has placed us. And so Paul can write in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And the context of that passage is, um, is sharing. It's generosity. It's caring for those who have needs out of a sense of our being filled by God, out of a sense of our contentment and our fulfillment in Christ. And that's the picture of the beautiful life that is painted by this commandment. We have all of our needs met in Jesus and, and much more than just our needs. All of our needs are met in Jesus. We have no need of what our neighbors possess that we don't. So then we can love our neighbor. We can set aside our desires. We can even set aside our rights, what we perceive to be our rights. And we can work to further our neighbor's good. We can work to enhance our neighbor's joy. And only the risen Lord Jesus can undo the covetousness in our hearts and make us new like that. And he does it. He does it. So put your trust in him and be changed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for not sparing your son, but giving him up for us all. And we believe, however uh, weakly, however meagerly we believe, we do believe that you love us, that you're taking good care of us, and that you have placed us where you've placed us in life for our good that you are not withholding any good thing from us and that you work all things together for our good. And even though that's hard for us to believe sometimes, we know your word says it, your word is true, your promises are sure. And so we bank on your word, we bank on your gospel, we bank on the fact that the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead to guarantee all your good promises to us, both now and forever. And so we come to you with thanksgiving, and we ask that you would make us content day by day, that you would give us contentment in you, that you would strengthen us in your word, strengthen us in the assurance of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>